From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. On the third anniversary of the tragic shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, President Joe Biden issued his administration's first significant push for new gun control measures. President Biden is calling on Congress to pass what he's calling common sense gun reform. The president says he wants to ban assault weapons, high capacity magazines, and he wants to require background checks for all gun sales. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki recently stated that Biden is eager to take on the NRA. I will say that, you know, the president addressing gun violence in the country and putting in place additional safety measures is something that the president has a personal commitment to, uh, and his history on this issue is evidence of that. Uh, You know, he's obviously taken on the NRA twice uh, and won, uh, and he is happy and eager to do that in the future. Uh, Part of our engagement is working with uh, groups to determine what the uh, steps are that can be taken. So it sounds like it's on. A liberal president and Congress could move forward with their gun control wish list. But Heritage Legal Fellow Amy Swear writes that as usual, instead of addressing the real underlying problems when it comes to gun violence, President Biden is pushing politically divisive measures that could seriously damage our right to keep and bear arms without making the nation any safer. Our explainer today is inspired by Swearer's op-ed. And when we return after this quick break, we will blow four factual holes in the administration's gun control agenda. Do you have an opinion that you'd like to share? Leave us a voicemail at 202-608-6205 or email us at letters at dailysignal.com. Yours could be featured on the Daily Signal podcast. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So what type of gun control measures is the Biden administration seeking? Well, there's nothing uh, particularly new in uh, President Biden's latest message to Congress about gun control. Um, For anyone who's been paying attention, I mean, I I think we had a pretty good idea of uh, what type of measures his administration might push for. Um, But we do have sort of his first real statement as president on these issues. And that came last month on the third anniversary of the, the tragic school shooting at Uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, if you recall, in 2018. Um, I think the big takeaway from this message to Congress uh, was uh, four sort of main thrusts um, of gun control measures that that he was calling for. So the first uh, was a ban on uh, so-called assault weapons and a ban on high-capacity magazines, Uh, Then you also saw him call for a a mandate for background checks on all gun sales. Um, And that was the the term that he used, all gun sales. And then he also talked about eliminating immunity for gun manufacturers, and and I'm quoting here, who knowingly put weapons of war on our streets. 
So again, none of this is particularly uh, new in the sense that, you know, no one has ever suggested these measures before, um, but it is his first time as president calling uh, specifically on Congress to, to take on these issues. Um, you know, and I think, too, the, the, these were very vague calls. Um, so none of these calls uh, outlined specific measures. For example, you know, what, what should constitute a so-called assault weapon uh, in any of these bills? Uh, would these bans be merely future bans, um, which is what uh, Biden seemed to call for during his campaign? You know, uh, you can keep the guns you have now, but we're going to ban future sales. Um, or, or is it going to be a full-on Australian-style confiscation measure? Um, so, you know, it, it is pretty vague there, but I, again, it's, it's notable because it, it is his first real push as president to take on these issues. Yeah, and my guess is, is we're going to hear a lot more about this with such a liberal Congress. Let's unpack some of these issues. You wrote about each one of them in a recent op-ed. Can you talk to me a little bit more about banning assault weapons? There are a lot of people out there that would tell you that there's no reason everyday citizens need assault weapons, that these are weapons of war. How would you refute that? Well, first of all, I'd start with the Constitution. If the Second Amendment protects it, you know, it, it doesn't matter what anybody's particular specific opinion is on whether or not I or you or anybody else needs it. If the Second Amendment protects it, it is protected. And I think there are obvious constitutional problems with, you know, whether it's completely banning future sales or confiscation efforts. We're talking about the nation's most popular semi-automatic rifles, um, something like 15 to 20 million of them in circulation among civilians in this country. Um, and when you start using phrases like weapons of war, these are not useful or meaningful constitutional tests. Um, so when you look at what the Supreme Court has said in cases like uh, District of Columbia v. Heller, McDonald v. City of Chicago, um, when you even just look at uh, the original meaning of the Second Amendment, uh, th there's nothing in there about, oh, well, if, if certain people think this is a weapon of war, then it's not covered. No, I, I think the Supreme Court's test, uh, which is basically that, it, you know, is it a commonly used arm that's commonly used by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes, uh, then it's, it's protected. Um, you know, and again, along with that, you look at what types of firearms uh, were clearly protected at the time of ratification. You have people bringing... Uh, you know, whether it's single shot pistols, um, muskets, you know, your brown bass musket, your Kentucky long rifle, these were at the time weapons of war. That, that was sort of the, the point is you, you had these firearms that people had, um, you know, that, that had legitimate civilian functions. They could use them for hunting, for self-defense, um, but then that were also useful if they were called up to sort of community defense duties within the context of a militia um, that, that, so again, like this idea of weapons of war, it's just, it's a term that they use to scare people. It doesn't have a real constitutional significance. And um, so that's, that's the first thing that I would say, right? You, you have this constitutional argument. But then even beyond that, you, you look at these policy issues. If you could just snap your fingers um, and, and all of a sudden overnight, these 15 to 20 million uh, firearms, uh, these the semi-automatic rifles just disappeared, would it make a difference? And the answer is no. Uh, and, and part of this is, again, there's nothing unusually dangerous about guns like the AR-15. And that has to do with how you even define assault weapons, right? So when you look at the, the, the 
defining features of assault weapons. It's not things like caliber, muzzle velocity, rate of fire. Um, it, it's mostly cosmetic features, um, you know, things that actually make the gun safer, easier, and more comfortable to handle, um, you know, collapsing stocks, pistol grips, th those sorts of things. Um, you know, and even when you look at, you know, how often are these guns used in crime? These are actually the types of firearms that are least likely to be used against civilians in a criminal manner. Um, something like only 3% of gun-related homicides every year are committed by rifles of any kind. Um, you know, they're, they're not really used in gun suicides, um, you know, especially compared to things like handguns. They are far, far less dangerous if you're just looking merely at how criminals use guns. Um, you know, what is actually used in, in the vast majority of gun deaths and gun crimes, it's, it's not these guns. So, you know, again, even if you get past these constitutional issues, is this even a policy that's going to make Americans meaningfully safer? And, and the answer is no. And, and frankly, it's not designed that way. It's, it's designed as sort of this political pushback against scary looking guns. Yeah, that 3% stat, that's that's a big one. And that, that brings me to the next point, which is about banning high capacity magazines. Would banning that, would that stop the loss of life in scenarios like Stoneman Douglas High School? You know, the, the unfortunate reality is, is no, it, it wouldn't. You know, again, you start with the, the constitutional issues. I, I think you have very, very serious constitutional questions about banning these um, for the same reasons that you would so-called assault weapons. Um, but when when you look at what, what even is a high-capacity magazine, it's, it's a very arbitrary definition to begin with. Um, so, so most times, the, most of these laws in, in certain states will say, um, you know, 10 rounds, some states it's 12, some states it's 15. Um, but there's no, like, st statistical reason for this that, that people really point to. It's just like, oh, that, that's a good round number. Um, so, you know, you, you start with this, this arbitrary measure of, well, no one needs, you know, more than 10 rounds, um, just because 10 is, I guess, a round number. But then when you start getting underneath um, to, again, the, the real underlying data that we know about gun crimes and gun violence, um, I, I think, so you mentioned mass shootings, and I, I think that's a good place to start, even though mass shootings are very, very small percentage of, of gun deaths every year in this country. They are, of course, um, very visceral. I, I mean, they have massive impacts on society compared to just how small of a an actual problem they are. But even when you look at, at mass public shootings, the vast majority of these shooters are already bringing with them more than one firearm. So you already have that complicating factor. And then you have to look at the context of what's happening in these mass shootings. So the average time frame between when a person starts that shooting and when there's an armed response that is going to meaningfully stop him um, is most often about six minutes. Um, sometimes it's, it's actually a lot more than that. So you essentially have several minutes for this person um, to wreak havoc. And at that point, it doesn't matter. I mean, the, the impact of saying, okay, well, now there's several seconds where they need to reload. The impact of that is, is effectively meaningless um, if you just force them to use another weapon or, or to reload. Whereas if you flip that and you look at the context of how a civilian, a, a law-abiding civilian might use um you know, a so-called high-capacity magazine, it's in a situation where they are already immediately being confronted by crime. You know, someone has broken into their home um, and they are that first responder. 
where that several seconds when they're outgunned, when they're um, you know out outnumbered, um, when their life is on the line, those several seconds of of reloading could be very very important to saving lives. Um, you know, so I mean, it's it's just astonishing to me that even if you look at this from just a um, you know cost benefit analysis, the the benefit of you know possibly uh, causing mass shooters to spend some extra seconds versus causing law-abiding civilians in a self-defense context to spend those extra seconds, it's it's not even a question, um, especially when you look at the number of times that law-abiding civilians defend themselves versus you know how often mass shootings happen. Amy, President Biden brought up mandatory background checks. Let's be really clear on this. What do they want to change? Don't we already do background checks? The answer is yes and no. Um, statistically, I think most most gun sales and transfers in this country do go through background checks. Um, so if you are buying a gun from a store, from any sort of uh, brick and mortar place, from anyone who is um, what the ATF calls engaged in the business of dealing firearms, um, you know, your, your typical gun seller, whether it's at a gun show, um, a store over the internet, federal law requires a background check. Um, it also requires a background check if you're just a, an individual person selling across state lines. There is this sort of small group of, of sales that do not require background checks. Um, so right now, if you think of things like arms list, um, so the, these sort of um, individual sales to individuals within the same state, um, you know, so like if, if I have a, a gun that I just want to get rid of and, you know, advertise it on on arms list, um, I don't necessarily have to go through a background check, at least under federal law. And, and part of the reason for this is that only those businesses, those, those federally licensed businesses, have access to the national instant criminal background check system. Um, so if I, as you know, a not FFL, want to sell a gun, I have to go pay an FFL to do that. I can't just call up the FBI and have them run a background check. Um, so the, on the one hand, um, I. I think that, that it makes sense to want to try to, um, you know, ensure that that these sort of individual sales are checked in a in a more uh, substantial way. Um, I don't think that's a that's a bad thing, especially these private commercial sales between strangers. But there are two important things to keep in mind. Um, so the first is that even if this was 100% successful, it's a very low reward endeavor. Um, so we know that statistically, this is not how most would-be criminals acquire firearms. Um, and, and we also know that even if it were, the, the same people who are already selling to people they know are criminals are going to continue doing so without background checks, even if you now say you, know, you have to conduct a background check. Um, and second, you know, I, I said Biden's recent call called for um, background checks on all sales. The problem is most calls for universal background checks are much broader than that. Um, it, it would impose these significant burdens on sort of low-risk temporary transfers. You know, effectively, anytime someone other than you wants to touch your gun um, for whatever limited period of time, you have to do a background check. Um, and you're, you're more likely to actually make felons of law-abiding citizens um, than to stop any criminal from getting guns that way. Um, right. You know, and, and so again, this is one of those areas where I think work can be done, especially if you combine private sale background checks 
with you know reasonable exemptions for concealed carry permit holders, people who you know have gun permits in states that that require gun permits, where you know by virtue of having that permit, you clearly pass a background check. Um, but it's it's not it's not a a high reward scenario. So because it's low reward, you want to make sure that it's also low burden and low risk for law abiding citizens. Okay. And then the last measure you mentioned is eliminating immunity for gun manufacturers. And I say it like this because I'm not really sure what this means exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mo- most of the time when people reference eliminating immunity for gun manufacturers, um, they're referring to the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, which I believe was passed in 2005. And I- so let, let's talk about this act, because I, I think there's a lot of mischaracterizations of this. Yeah, because um, to me, that just still, I'm still like, what does that mean? Right, what is that act? Right. Um, so what this law does is it, and it is unique to the gun industry, uh, but the law protects gun manufacturers, sellers, distributors um, from lawsuits trying to claim that they're liable for third parties criminally misusing their guns. So essentially, you know, if, if the, the gun store sold a gun in compliance with federal law to someone, um, and for whatever reason, that person or someone else somewhere down the line uses that gun to harm someone else, um, this law protects the gun seller from being sued for that, you know, as some sort of like, you provided this person with a dangerous weapon. Um, it does not mean that they're not liable for things like selling defective products. Like if the gun explodes in your hands, that's that's bad. You can sue them. Um, you know, if they fail to, affi- fail to um, follow federal regulations about sales and safety and doing background checks, um, if they you know, falsely advertise and, and these sort of tort claims, you, you can absolutely still, st- still sue them for that. But the point of this and the reason that Congress granted this type of immunity was that Prior to it, gun control advocates were just barraging the gun industry with these types of frivolous lawsuits um, about you know third-party criminal misuse, really just in hopes of miring these businesses um, in, in expensive litigation to essentially say, well, we, we can't kneecap the gun industry through certain types of litigation, um, so we're going to choke out a lawful industry by just tying them up in court and making it too expensive for them to to continue selling guns. Okay. Um, and and so that that's that's problematic. And and so when when they talk about repealing this, what they're actually saying is we want to make it so that the the gun control groups can try to kneecap this lawful industry again. Um, they're, they're, it's not about promoting public safety. Um, you know, it, it's it's not about any sort of attempts to actually, you know, reduce gun violence, it's about choking out the gun industry. In conclusion, does anything in the Biden administration that they're proposing, does it make anyone safer? And if not, what should we be doing instead? The short answer is no. Uh, You know, even if 100% successful, even if we just ignore constitutional problems with them, none of these proposals, especially when compared to other things we could be doing, um, they're not going to make Americans safer. Um, what it's going to do is create a very politically divisive atmosphere where, you know, to, to be even marginally successful, you'd have to put so much political energy and so much time and money and, you know, the, the sort of federal effort to make them marginally successful. But I think if instead you took that time and energy um, and, and effort and put it into things that are addressing the underlying 
problems um, that, that produce gun violence. You're going to get a much safer nation if, if you put it into, um, for example, uh, investing in the nation's mental health infrastructure. So two-thirds of gun deaths every year are suicides. Two-thirds. An incredible number of, of, of deaths that are, are mental health related. Um, so investing in that, in, you know, investing in sort of targeted time-limited interventions um, for, for people who are um, a danger to themselves or others. Training communities, training local officials to take threats of violence and, and mental health seriously. Um, you know, using proven anti-gang uh, violence programs. Um, uh, programs like, un unfortunately, ones that the Virginia Democrats recently declined to fund in the state of Virginia. Um, you know, investing in education and investing in, um, you know, communities to create stable families, to create economic opportunities that lead people um, away from drug and gang related violence and, and that promote human flourishing. Those types of efforts, um, one, again, it, it promotes human flourishing in a lot of other ways, but it's also related to reductions in, in gun violence in gun suicides and gun homicides. Um, so if, if we're going to make this massive concerted effort, let's put it where it matters. Let's put it where it's going to do the most good instead of attacking law-abiding citizens. Amy, thank you so much for all your research on this topic. And I'm sure this isn't the first we'll be speaking to you about this issue. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week's episode of Heritage Explains. The link to Amy's op-ed is in our show notes. If there's a topic you want to hear about or some feedback you want to leave us, you can reach me at michelle.cordero at heritage.org. Also, we would love it if you could leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Thanks again. I'm so grateful to be able to bring you these explainers every week, and I hope you're well. We'll see you soon. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by John Pop.